This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. So I have a quick question for you. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier. My name is Pastor Tyler. I'm the worship pastor here. And I have a quick question. Let's say somebody, uh, if you're a regular attender here, and somebody came up and asked you, so how long has your church been around? How might you respond to that? Now, uh, Community Covenant Church has been around for like 20 years, give or take. But the church, right, has been around for like 2,000 years. So you say, oh, my church has been around for about 2,000 years. And they go, really? What church do you go to? Right? We're in a series called The Spirit of Adventure, God on the Move, Then and Now. And it's been, we've been moving through the book of Acts. Does anybody remember when we started this? It's been a while. It's been over a year, actually. And what I would like to do, we're going to do our scripture reading here in just a little bit for the passage that was given to me. But I want to do just some real quick review on what's been happening in Acts. Because... Acts is our beginning as a church, right? So that means as we read the experiences within the stories, we're supposed to identify with those things and ask questions about how it impacts us today, how it impacts our church, Community Covenant Church. So it's not just an otherworldly experience that's completely separated, but it's the beginning of our story together as followers of Jesus who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit and who have the knowledge of Jesus' resurrection. So we share that. So when we look at Acts, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, you remember that there's the birth of Christ. And most people, or excuse me, of, of church. Yeah, in Acts 1 and 2, it's the birth of the church. And uh, you may remember, but it's very dramatic. Jesus' followers are in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit descends on them, right? Um they begin prophesying and speaking in tongues and thousands begin to turn to Jesus Christ. And it's all centered in Jerusalem and around the Jews. And then in chapter 11, you remember Peter is sent to a guy named Cornelius who was a Gentile. And in sharing the gospel with Cornelius and all his household and the people that were there, he was stunned because the Holy Spirit fell on them. And he said, he, what the text says in the NIV is that he commands them for them to be baptized because obviously God is doing something in them. And that was a surprise. It was this huge movement. And then in chapter 12, we have the beginning of Paul's first missionary uh, trip with Barnabas. And there's other things obviously that happen, but I'm trying to hit a few highlights here. In chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council. And that is where the church is trying to decide what do we do with these Gentile believers? And essentially their question is, do they need to become like Jews? Do they need to observe the law? Do they need, what is God doing? And they make the decision, no, that faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection is enough. And we don't need to lay this burden on their back that we ourselves can't even keep. So that was very significant in the life of the church. And then in chapter 16, Paul starts his second missionary trip. And then in chapter 19, where we're going to be... Uh, he, he's now beginning his third missionary trip. I don't know if you can see that very well. I guess it's okay. So, um, 
Israel and Judea is off to the right, and you can kind of see his path. And, and he starts off in Antioch, and he kind of goes through the interior there, and he gets to Ephesus. Ephesus is, I don't know if this pointer works here. Yeah, Ephesus right here, if you can see that. And it's right on the coast there in Asia Minor. So he, he begins his missionary journey there. And before we get to our scripture reading, I need to tell you a few things about Ephesus. Ephesus, where it was located there in the few hundred years uh, before um, before Paul shows up there, it had become Rome's sort of gateway into Asia Minor. It was huge traffic. The harbor came almost right up to the city. Nowadays, it's about like five to seven miles away because the river that's there is so silty, it's pushed the harbor out by about five or seven miles but in the hundreds of years prior to Paul coming, that was the major gateway of Rome into all of Asia Minor. So it was a major port of commerce. There was a lot of wealth and things that happened there. By the time Paul got there, though, they were tr- struggling to keep that harbor clear of all that silt. But what had emerged as being really important, and I'm just going ahead and jump to my next slide I have here, is the Temple of uh, Artemis. Now, Artemis is uh, associated with the uh, Greek goddess Diana, okay? Um, it's the goddess of fertility. And uh, they had a temple in Ephesus that was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Almost four times the size of the Parthenon. And so it, it drew people from all over Asia Minor. It was a very significant thing, and there was, there was commerce and business that was all built up around that. Uh, and then, uh, let's see if there's anything else I wanted to say about that. And then, um, also in Ephesus, is this, it was a great, uh, the great proliferation of and practice of magic. That's supposed to say great proliferation and practice of magic. And that's not like magic, like combining two rings or pulling a bunny out of a hat. It's more like what we would associate with dark magic um, and incantations. And so that was that was the context in which Paul came to Ephesus. So he shows up on the scene, and we're going to get into some of this in a little bit. But what happens is, is it seems like God really opens up a door to him. And he ends up staying in Ephesus longer than anywhere else in any of his missionary journeys because God's power and his word is just having a huge impact, not only on Ephesus, but in the whole surrounding area. In fact, he writes from Ephesus uh, to Corinthians, and he says, I will be staying here at Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. There's a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. And so it's, it, it, was, um, it was a place that Paul spent about three years and um, during that time, the gospel just continued to grow. So much so that it ultimately caused what the Bible calls a great disturbance. It's the riot in Ephesus. And so now uh, we get to our scripture reading. So I have a question. How many people here ever, and by a show of hands, ever wanted to be a part of a drama group, Ever wanted to be a movie star? Ever wanted to be a, a movie second? Anything like that? Just raise your hand. Okay, now everybody else raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. All right. Some people don't think your bodies. Everybody. Anyway, 
That's okay. Well, this morning we're going to do a th- uh, what is it? Reader's theater for our scripture reading. Okay, reader's theater. And here's the thing: don't worry because everybody gets to participate. Okay, everybody's going to participate. Now I have four parts. Okay, I have Demetrius, who is a um, Demetrius is a, um, a, a guild. Tradesman, uh, a guild leader of a tr- of a trade, and he would dealt with idols and shrines and things like that that they used in the worship of Ar- Artemis in the temple there. And um, I have his. Where's right here? See, not a very big part. Okay. I also have a mayor. Okay, and I have a part for the mayor. So those are my two biggest parts. So I need two volunteers, say roughly eighteen and older, to read these parts for me. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I need a couple volunteers. I promise I won't embarrass you. There we go. Chris, thank you. There we go. I have Chris and I have Curtis. Okay. I think I'm going to give you Demetrius. Okay. You can stay up here. So Chris... You're going to be the mayor. You're going to come up later. So I'm going to say, but you stay right here. Actually, you can bring that podium and set it right here, that podium. And you can bring those three chairs up for me as well. Now, what I need now is I need three younger people. Huh? Huh? Coffee? No, this is good. Thank you, sir. Yes. Three younger people. Do we have any, like, high schoolers, junior high that want to be a part of this? Josiah, there we go. There we go. And David. Ah, thank you. I just volunteered David. I should have. I should have grabbed the gal. We don't want to make this all uh, okay. So if we need to spread out these chairs, you guys, are, you can set them three in a row right here. All right. Now everybody else is part of the city, or the crowd, or the people. So as I read, I am the director and the narrator. I'm reading right out of the the New Living Translation, and when I say something that the people do, or that the crowd does, then that's when you guys act your part. Okay, so for example, if I said the crowd fell silent, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> that was close. If I said the people shouted aloud together in unison, cheeseburger, cheeseburger, excellent. I think we are ready for our our uh, our play here. So just as a reminder, what's been happening is the gospel is growing and it's having a huge impact. It's having a huge impact within the church and in the community all around. And so we get to verse 23, the riot in Ephesus. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had had large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together, along with others employed in similar trades, and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen. Oh, gosh. You know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that had 
that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all throughout the, all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. Very good. At this, the craftsman, the craftsman anger boiled. And they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! They shouted it even louder. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Very good. Thank you very much. You guys may all have a seat. We move on to scene two. Yeah, you can step down. Leave that there. Very good. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers would not let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting. Some one thing, some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowds pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they shouted, started shouting again, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they kept it up for about two hours. Okay, hold up. Time out. Time out. We're going to bring up our mayor here. Where's Chris? So in just a second, we're taking a short pause. You're going to continue because my next line here is, at last the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. So you're going to be shouting that, and he has to make some kind of motion to quiet you down. Okay? Of Ephesus, citizens, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, okay? Everybody knows that already, you know, whose image fell down to us from heaven. And since this is an undeniable fact, you should just stay calm. Do not do anything rash. You know, you've brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and have not spoken against our goddess. Now, if Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, if they have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. 
I'm afraid we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there is no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Very good. After that, he dispersed the crowd and they went home. But you can stay here for now. I'm going to say a few other things. So this great distress or turmoil, I want to walk you through what's happening in the text before we we get to that point. There's a riot in Ephesus, which we just looked at. I showed you this before. I want to point something out as we come into the third missionary journey of of Apostle Paul that I thought was really interesting. So uh, the birth of the church, when the church was birthed, there's a, a few things that happened at that moment that signaled the expansion of the gospel. The Holy Spirit was given. People prophesied and spoke in tongues, right? And uh, there were uh, disciples that were there. In verse, or excuse me, in chapter 11, when we get down there, similar kind of a pattern happens. The gospel is preached... The Holy Spirit is poured out, as I mentioned earlier, as, as Peter is with those people. And it's evidenced, once again, by tongues and prophesying. And the gospel begins to just spread in the Gentile world. Then we have some of these other things, and we get down to chapter 19. Paul begins his third missionary journey. He comes into Ephesus. He's been there once before, briefly. He comes into Ephesus, and he meets some gentlemen who had heard of John's baptized. They had been baptized in the baptized of John the Baptist. They hadn't heard about Jesus or about the Holy Spirit's baptism. But what's really interesting is you see the same pattern. They believe in Jesus. They get baptized. And then uh, they begin to prophesy and speak in tongues. And this is what the text says. It says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus... When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There are about 12 men in all. Now, I thought that was really curious that Luke throws it. There's about 12 of them. Why would he include that? I wonder, I, I'm, okay, I'm not a scholar, but I wonder if we're supposed to get clued in. There was 12 disciples and the other followers too. But in that first time, it's like this is like another like indicator. Pay attention here. Because God's about ready to do something big and powerful. So Paul begins to, uh, he goes into the synagogue like he's, he typically does. And he's there for about three months until uh, more and more arguments arise and, and they reject him. And so he takes his group of believers and he goes and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. And for there he preaches daily for two years. For two years. And it says, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. You see that the gospel's just growing and expanding. And remember that verse I, I showed to you earlier about he decided to stay because God had opened such a wide door. And, and, and remember, this is in a context where there's a lot of magical arts and stuff like that. And it's really interesting. He says he did extraordinary miracles. And it even mentions, 
you know, uh, times when a handkerchief or, or something that Paul had touched would be used to go and heal somebody or cast a demon out. And so God's power had, was just very evident in what was going on. So after that happens, the next thing that happens is Jesus' name and power begin to be revered by all. And Luke tells us a story of uh, these Jewish exorcists. They're called the seven sons of Sceva. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, something like that. But Sceva was a high priest, and scholars think that what they did is they take the name of the high priest to sort of give lend credence to what they're doing. And, I mean, it sounds like some kind of a performance group or something going around. The seven sons of Sceva, we're here, you know. But they were going around, and they were casting out demons. But they got somewhere, and the way that they would do that, let me back up. The way that they would do that, apparently, according to the text, is they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Something like that. So they would invoke the name of Jesus and of Paul. Or to make it clear which Jesus they were talking about, it was the one that Paul, right? And in the text, what we find out is they get to a man who's demon-possessed, and they do that, and the demon says back to him, Well, I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is. But who are you? And they get severely beaten and bloody and naked before they escape. And the word of this spreads. It says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. There is this sense amongst everybody, Jews, Greeks, Christians, non-Christians, you don't mess around. This is serious stuff with Jesus. And then the text goes on to say, that many who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Because it, it sort of suggests that these were people who already had some expression of faith, but they hadn't let go of some of their magic arts and their secret scrolls and their incantations and all that kind of stuff. And so what they did is they, they had a public burning. It was a big te- public testimony about Jesus is the only way. And they make this big fire and they burn it up. And the estimated cost, scholars say, was would, in today's dollars would be in the neighborhood of millions. This is a serious amount of cash. So can you imagine that splashed across our headline, right? Uh, Christians from all over Anchorage, Eagle River, are gathered together and burn. I don't know. They're old let's heads on CDs. I don't know. But, but and to the tune of... A million dollars or two million dollars. I mean, this was this was huge. So again, it says in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power, influence into that area. And by the way, if you look at the the book of Revelation, the seven churches whom the apostle John writes to are all in Asia Minor. They're all in that area near Ephesus. God was doing a major, major work in this area. So then, when you have that, what happens is, when God's power 
and the gospel really begin to transform life, it tends to stir things up. We just hear about how it stirred it up uh, in inside the church, I mean, amongst believers, but we read and we did our reader's theater on what happened uh, in... Uh, in Ephesus with Demetrius and all those. And so the power of the gospel can shake the foundations of church and culture. Just subvert, subversively. Just by telling people that they can be free. That they don't have to rely on their idols. That God loves them. Isn't it amazing how that can ultimately shake the very foundation? In Ephesians chapter 2, it's, it, it lays out for us those things which are counter to the truth of the gospel. Those things that come against it. It's the world or the cosmos, the system, you know. This last week we had uh, come out in the news something like $150 million of um, bribe money that's been, you know, paid out with the FIFA, right? We cut this in the news. That's part of the system. See, if you're in that and you don't want to be a part of it, probably pretty difficult. But that there's the world... There's our sinful desires, those things that want to satisfy whatever apart from what God designed and planned for us. And then there's the devil. And we're seeing some of those same things in this. Those are things that we're come up against. I had the opportunity a couple years, well, it's been like, I don't know, four, five, six years ago, to be in Barcelona, Spain. Does anybody know what this building is? Sagrada Familia. That's right. By, by far the most fascinating building I've ever been in, okay? It was start, they started building it late 1800s. It's a, it's a uh, modern-day cathedral, Gothic-style cathedral. They're still not done building it. They're going to get done like in 2020 or 2025. My wife and I talked about, man, we'd love to be there for the opening. It was amazing inside and out. It was the artwork. It was, it was a spiritual experience. It really was. Even in amongst the tons of tourists, Busloads of people being dropped off, you know. I mean, just it was just lots and lots of people across the street, everywhere, everywhere across the street. This is what you would see. I mean, the contrast: t-shirts and hats and plates with the, you know. I mean, it was just everywhere. And I, I thought of this when I thought of this story of Demetrius and how, when all of a sudden, you know. Paul's preaching that you you don't have to be enslaved to the whole worship of Artemis. And you you don't have that Jesus made the offering for you, so you don't have to go and buy their trinkets and bow down to their idols and whatever else. Huge financial impact in the culture. So they get upset and they run into the Colosseum. This is the Colosseum in Ephesus. It sat like 25,000 people, estimated 25. Now, I don't know how full it was. It says, you know, the whole city was riled up. But this was quite a scene. Can you imagine Community Covenant Church stirring up this community because of the truth, the message of the gospel? Could that happen? So the question I want to ask is, why not here and why not now? Why not here, why not now? This is a, there's a tricky tension in, in this question, though. When I was, uh, I think I was a junior or senior in college, I was going to a small Bible school, 
And I, I really liked the students that were there. They had students who were part of uh, student government. And the new student government, this was in the fall one time, they got really fired up. And it was really a cool thing. It, this was a really good thing. They said, we want revival on our campus. We want to get revival going. And so they organized prayer meetings. And they, they you know, got the word out. There was banners. They were trying to do all this stuff to kind of get people to pray for revival. And then they went to one of the most respected professors on our campus. And they asked him if he would speak in chapel about revival. And I'll never forget one of the first things he said, very powerfully said, you can't plan on revival. It's a movement of God. God's timing. And so you have these juxt, you know, we want to pray for it, we want to long for it. And I look back over this text, the question I want to ask though, is can we experience more of a transforming power of the gospel in our midst? Is there some way we can experience more of it? Even though we live in this tension between wanting God to do something, and yet we have to depend on His timing and His power. And I want to mention three quick things from our passage, okay? One is, when Jesus shows up in the message of Paul, there were people there ready and eager to respond. Ready and eager to respond. And when I read that, I thought about Jesus going to his own town, like in, in Nazareth. I think it's in Mark chapter 6, he goes there. And, and they were amazed at his teaching business. Hey, we know this guy, right? I mean, we know his sisters, we know his mother. I mean, what's the deal with him? What's he, you know? There was a familiarity that bred apathy and resistance. I grew up in the church. I'm very familiar with how churches work and the different denominations, and I have a, a theology degree. But familiarity doesn't always lend itself to being having a heart that's eager and ready to respond when Jesus shows up. The text says that when, when Jesus left Nazareth, he couldn't do very many miracles there. The Son of God, the one who created everything, he couldn't do any miracles there because of their faith. Their lack of faith. So I'm convicted by this. If I want, if I truly want God to do something big here, am I preparing my heart to be ready to respond in faith and belief to what God might want to do? And then secondly, the other thing that we see is that when God shows up and does something, that there's a deepening of personal holiness and purity and confession There's this recognition that I need my life to better reflect the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. In that culture, it was bringing their incantations and their scrolls and all that that cost. What are the things that we value, that we hold on to, that might be contrary to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ? You see, as we grow in our reverence for Jesus Christ and His power and what He did, we want to be a part of that. And the third thing I'll mention is the worship team come on, uh, comes up to join me. It's just that God is in the business of stirring things. And even though we may want to share the good news that God loves people, that His grace is available... 
it could still stir the pot. And when things happen, there's always going to be people who are upset. And we could cause a disturbance in the community even, maybe. But that doesn't mean we're doing the wrong thing. In fact, I was sharing a little bit of this with my father-in-law yesterday. He mentioned that Billy Graham one time said something like, if what you're doing isn't upsetting anybody, maybe you're not doing the right thing. You know? Because it threatens the world, the flesh, and Satan's agenda when we're fully invested in what God is doing. So, as I, as I give a message today, the, the thing I want to tell myself, I want to encourage you to tell yourself, Lord, start with me. Start with where I'm at. Do I really want God to do something? Do I want God to stir my world for the sake of the gospel and not just changing my life, but changing the lives of people around me? Start with me. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for showing us from your word that the gospel message is powerful, that Jesus' name is powerful, that it changes things. God, may we at Community Covenant Church, may I be open to what you want to do, allow you to stir things. May I be quick, Lord, to respond and to believe. Lord, start with me, start with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.